All right, friends. Well, I want to encourage you to um, open up your Bibles, if you have one in front of you, to the Gospel of Mark. And I want to read to you a few verses from the 12th chapter of Mark's Gospel. And uh, we are going to get into just a short section, a little encounter that Jesus had on uh, one of these days. Remember, we're in the final week of Jesus' life, which is, occupies around a third of the Gospel of Mark. So it's a very significant few days in the life of Jesus uh, before he's crucified. And every encounter is pregnant with and heavy with significance and also kind of uh, portends what's about to take place in terms of his, um, his death and resurrection. I want to read to you from chapter 12, and verse 13. And it says this, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Remember, of course, that the Jewish people were a subject people at the time of Christ's life, that they were under Roman rule, as was most of the known world. And so the question of whether they pay taxes to Caesar is a very pointed one, a political question designed to trap him. It says verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, denarius being a coin. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, as I said to you, the days are counting down before Jesus is to be crucified in just um, a few short days. And it began with his arrival in Jerusalem on the donkey to great celebration and excitement at the beginning of this festival season. But as the days are unfolding, uh, the tensions are rising and each conversation that Jesus has, particularly with the religious authorities, feels like tremors before an earthquake or before an eruption of a volcano. The great event is soon to take place when, uh, when the whole city will be whipped up to turn on him and to cry, crucify him, crucify him. So each of these conversations marks a kind of moment when you feel the tremors under the surface of what's going on here and how um, the hatred against him is going to intensify, particularly among these religious authorities. And one of the strange things you see about Jesus in these conversations is his supernatural ability to bring about unity in a couple of ways. One, of course, we understand the unity of God's people pulled and called from every nation, tribe and tongue to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another kind of unity, which we see here, which is the unity of God's enemies. And it, we're told here that the, the Pharisees and the Herodians came together in this kind of um, pact to try and trick Jesus. And of course, the Pharisees are zealous uh, adherence to the law of God, much like Jesus himself, they're men who want to know God's will. The Herodians are more like politicians or businessmen, people who are in the pocket of Rome and interested in power and influence on, on a, in a kind of secular context. These are not 
um, natural bedfellows, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and yet they're brought together by their common hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, of course, goes a long way to explaining many of the experiences that Christians have endured through the centuries, that one of the peculiar powers of Christianity is its power to unite our enemies, and so that people who otherwise would disagree with one another find common ground in their common hatred of Jesus. And we're seeing why, as we understand the things he says and the demands he makes on people's lives. Now, what we're particularly interested in here is how he responds to their efforts to trap him. They ask him this interesting question. They ask him, should we, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And this is, you have to understand right at the outset, is an absolute lose-lose question. Either Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to this oppressive regime, that is, um, that, that none of us are particularly happy about. And then what happens, of course, is that the common people who at this point are very much uh, loving Jesus and the things he's teaching will turn against him. Or he says, no, don't pay taxes. And of course, within 24 hours or less, he would have experienced the wrath of the state falling upon him as he calls for a kind of sedition or rebellion against the state. And so what does he do? Now look carefully. First, he asks for a denarius, a coin. And this coin was worth about a day's wage and uh, was, of course, the coin which would have been used to pay the poll tax which the Romans required. And upon this coin, this despised tax, by the way, it's Roman currency, upon this coin was an image of the emperor. And just note for, for a second that the Jews found, uh, considered images to be blasphemous of any kind. It had an image of the emperor on a coin, much like ours do, And then it had these inscriptions. On one side it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. A claim to divinity. A claim by the emperor, which was common at the time, among uh, powerful um, emperors and kings, to claim divinity. A claim that he was divine. And then you turn the coin over, and on the other side it said, highest priest. A kind of religious claim. And so, we know... Even though they were being hypocritical, there's actually truth in what the questioners say to Jesus. They say, you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? These men speak more truly than they know. Jesus was no people pleaser. And so it seems that he's put into this impossible situation in which, with this coin in front of him, as he's just requested, which has blasphemous statements on it, in which the emperor claims to be divine, in which his image is imprinted, in which he describes himself as the highest priest, which, of course, in the scriptures is Christ's title, the highest priest, it's the perfect trap. On the one hand, we've got Jesus who has been making these claims to be the Messiah, to be the one who has come to liberate his people, to be the one whose rule will extend from sea to sea, as it says in Zechariah 9, the prophecy that he he called on. And on the other hand, you've got this emperor saying, I'm divine, and I'm not just interested in in, in your uh, secular lives, I'm interested in your spirituality, I'm the highest priest. He's saying that I own your entire existence. And of course, this naturally leads to this conflict between the claims of Jesus and the claims of the emperor. It's the perfect trap. It's a head-to-head conflict because the claims overlap. They're they're, they're making the same demands on people. And Jesus gives an answer 
when he says here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's, he gives an answer which has been described like this by one commentator as universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. And how is that the case? Because by this one statement, Jesus brought about this innovation, this new aspect of the way Christianity would function, which is what we understand to be the separation of the church and state, in which the church would be liberated to fulfill its global call, detached from the need of having political rule. Now, this isn't just about politics, and it's not just about Um, things that happen on the grand scale of history and an explanation for what for Christian history up to this point. It's not just about that. This statement has unbelievable practical significance to our day-to-day life, living as we are in a hostile world, in a world which certainly where we are is increasingly in conflict with the things that we believe and seems to be very much moving away from um, it's, it's kind of the, the influences of Christianity in many, many respects. We're living in this world where, as Peter describes us, we're exiles in one of his letters. We're exiles and sojourners in the world. And the question which we have to wrestle with constantly as we're confronted with the news and we're confronted with conversations we have with friends and colleagues as we are, we are aware all the time through entertainment and through every exposure we have to the world we're in that we are different. The question we have to ask is, well, how do we live in this world? What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus and also to exist in this hostile environment which is naturally opposed to the things that we believe and teach? And unless we understand what Jesus established here, then I don't think we can survive as Christians. And I want to show you some of the principles which come out of this, directly and indirectly from this passage, and which agree with the rest of Jesus' teaching. And I'm going to move swiftly through these various ideas. The first is this. He teaches a kind of humble hiddenness for his kingdom and for his people. What do I mean by humble hiddenness? I'm not talking about shyness or quietness. On the contrary... Uh, One of the things that Jesus made very clear about the calling of his people, you and me, is that we are meant to be bright and we are meant to be loud. He said to his disciples when he sent them on a mission trip, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And he said to them just prior to that, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. God's people are meant to be loud and disruptive with the things that we believe. So I'm not talking about a kind of um, a, a kind of wilting into the background and shyness and quietness. And nor am I speaking about what some people think uh, Christian humility is, which is a kind of diffidence or reticence about the things that we believe. People say, well, you know, every opinion is valid and we can't really be sure. And therefore we ought to just adopt this, what is described as a kind of humble posture about the things we believe. And this is absolutely in absolute opposition to the way Jesus conducted himself. Christ was never hesitant or diffident or reticent or, or willing to, um, to court various opinions. He was utterly certain about the things we believe. And as Christians, part of our humility is actually a trust that Christ's word is the final word on all things and a confidence in it. So I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about then, when I describe this humble hiddenness, is the way the kingdom will operate in this world, which is actually in contrast to the way we assume it should operate. 
Think about this problem. The Gospel of Mark has begun with the first message that Jesus preached, which is, the kingdom of God is among you, repent and believe the Gospel. The kingdom of God is here, he says in Mark chapter 1. And a kingdom naturally is a political entity. So everything about the preaching of Jesus up to this point and the claims that he's making about himself are, as I've told you already, in direct conflict with the powers that be in the world around him. The new thing which Jesus did, though, the thing which, which was not immediately understood about his rule and reign and about the nature of his kingdom was this hiddenness, the way in which the kingdom would operate under the radar, as it were. And I think about passages like this one in Matthew 13, and I've read this to you in recent weeks, where he said that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or, or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. You can't see leaven, but as it pervades the dough and does its work, it brings about transformation. It brings it about in a hidden and secretive way. Elsewhere, when he was asked very directly about his kingdom by the Pharisees again in Luke 17, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, he says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Which means that even though on the surface of things, a solitary preacher with a small ragtag bunch of men who had no political power whatsoever, even though on the surface of things it looked like the kingdom had not come, one of the core principles of the way Christ's kingdom operates is that it is here in the midst of us, even when it looks like there's nothing to show for it. The humble and the hidden aspect of the way Christ rules. Now, why is this so important for us? And I think the answer is that it helps us as Christians to avoid the worldly ways of thinking in which to, into which we so easily slip. And I think about this, you know, throughout my life, many, many times, I've, uh, Christians have celebrated when we've gained influence culturally or politically or when some famous celebrity gives their life to Jesus and we think this is the way the kingdom will advance. By power, by might, by influence, by public voice, through important people. And I, I want to suggest to you, I think that that is almost the exact opposite to the way the kingdom actually functions in this world. That's not to say that God doesn't use public people. That's not to say that he doesn't use the systems of power in this world to bring about the changes that he wants. It's not to say that people in high places can't serve him. I'm not suggesting any of those things. But what I am saying to you, and what's important for you and me, most of us just ordinary folk, is that God's preferred method is the hidden way. In 1, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said this. Listen to how encouraging this is. He said, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, what the Greeks valued, the wisdom of this world, philosophy. He says, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, which is what the Jews valued. They wanted conquest. They wanted power. They wanted to reassert the kingdom of David on this world. He says, this isn't the people that God's chosen. He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. 
In other words, the uneducated, those who don't have a Greek philosophical education. And he says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, those who have no influence, no power. Most of the the early Christians were slaves, after all. He said, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So this is God's way of overthrowing the powers of this world. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For as long as we think we need the institutions and the powers that be to bring about so-called Christian, uh, the Christianization of society, then we'll always have cause to boast. We'll say, oh, because of this man or because of this powerful influence, the kingdom was brought to bear on the world. And that's not how it works. God gets in at grassroots by the power of his spirit and wins over people like you and me, whose influence is hidden, is invisible, but is potent nonetheless. And he says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ is our hope, in other words. I think, to a large extent, Christians should avoid what we describe these days as the culture wars, and focus instead upon the gospel and upon loving our neighbours. And in this way, the kingdom moves in the midst. It moves in this humble hiddenness. Here's a second principle that I derive from this. What I want to describe as kind of religious pacifism. Now, what we have to see here is that Jesus had an opportunity at this particular moment when this question came to him. There was something of a fervor that was rising around this person, Jesus, such that had he called for rebellion against Rome, I think a good portion of the Jewish people would have gone for it. They were ready. They wanted somebody like him to lead them in rebellion. We know that because the history just prior to this was full of rebellion and the history just 30 years or so after this, they rebelled again. So the Jewish people were always just on the edge, just ready, just waiting for leadership, just waiting for the right person to lead them away from their oppression of their enemies. And so Jesus has this opportunity to call for violence, to call for rebellion. That was logical. That was what was expected. And it's exactly what he doesn't do. Instead, he commends this, what I want to describe as a religiously pacifistic mode for his people. And what do I mean by this? I don't mean pacifism in the way we normally describe of it, which is the complete opposition to all forms of violence and war. That's another question for another day, but I'm less convinced that Jesus taught that. And nor am I speaking about passivity or passivity of mode or of posture or of spirit. It's very, very clear to me that Jesus was himself not passive, that he didn't want his people to be passive. And you think about the way he praised his cousin John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. In other words, it's attacked. And the violent take it by force, which I take to mean that he was, he was referencing the spirit of John the Baptist, that John was a man who had zeal and passion and urgency and force of heart. And I think that Christ himself modeled that, and I think he wanted that among his people. We're not talking about passivity, therefore. 
Paul is a wonderful example of this. You remember what he says about his life and his, his pattern of life as a preacher of the gospel. He says things like, I beat my body and make it my slave. He wanted to preach the gospel. He wanted to be tireless in his efforts for Christ. He says in Colossians 1, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is not passivity. This is not, in sense, being laid back. We're not talking about that. What am I talking about, though, is this. That Jesus ruled out the possibility that his kingdom should or even could be extended through any means of force. You think about, you think about how unlikely this is because of the temptation and the need at one level to use force to extend the kingdom for this reason that Christianity is a deeply unappealing religion. It calls you to self-denial. It calls you to social exclusion. It it calls you to a life of suffering. And the most devoted Christians, as we see in the pages of the gospel and through history, the most devoted Christians have suffered the most. You think, on the surface of it, who would want to be a Christian? So naturally, the only way this thing is going to spread is if you force people to believe some way or other through institutional rule or power or the sword or some other way. How do we explain the spread of Christianity given the fact that it renounced those means? And of course, those means were not foreign to the people at the time. And just a number of centuries later, the other great sort of monotheistic faith, Islam, would arise and would use the sword to spread. So all of this was just a natural way that people thought at the time. And Jesus says no. The way his gospel would spread, and this is part of its hiddenness again, the way the kingdom would spread, this is so crucial for us to grasp and to fully acknowledge. It would spread by the inherent power of the Word of God, which is likened to seed in the Gospels and in the, in the New Testament, with the Spirit blowing upon it, with the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of hearts and souls. There's no other way that this thing can go. We, you, it's not even possible to bring about the the growth of the kingdom through force, which is why I think to a large extent Christians are misguided when they attempt political means of bringing about Christ's rule on earth or when they do, when even as parents, you know, we think we can force our kids to believe. It's not true. You can't. The only way this gospel ever spreads is through the power of the word itself as it falls upon the human heart, brings about a change. The birth of faith, persuasion, the belief that it's true because the Holy Spirit brings to life the seed within your own heart. And you may be somebody who's experiencing that even now as you're engaging with spirituality during this lockdown and you're considering the person of Christ. As his claims fall upon your heart like seed, something's growing and this is how it works. This is how it's worked for every one of us who believes. The Holy Spirit just brings us to life in a way that we did not even participate in. It was him working in us. But I say this mainly to encourage those of you who are Christian. In a sense, our job is to preach the gospel and nothing else. In the sense that we cannot bring about anybody's uh, change of mind or heart. It has to be the gospel that changes them. It has to be the work of the Spirit. And we must relax, therefore. We work hard, but then we relax. We leave it with God. He commends this hiddenness, this religious pacifism. Here's a third principle I want to bring to you. This passage teaches us what I want to describe as a kind of dual citizenship. And what I mean by this is, think about how he, he, 
he, he, he instructs us. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And this actually is the root of an immense amount of frustration for Christians. It's an infuriating teaching. I'll tell you why. Because if you live under an evil regime, if you live under corruption, if you live under godlessness, then you want to rebel. And in fact, if, you have a, if you're bloody-minded in the way that I think I am, there's something even appealing about rebellion. There's something even appealing about a kind of being an outsider, about maintaining a stance of, of hostility to the powers that be, of, of nurturing outrage in your heart. It can make you even feel good. And yet what the New Testament does, and I think that the New Testament writers take their lead from what Jesus said on this particular occasion when he said, render to Caesar, render to God. What the New Testament does is it keeps calling Christians back. And this is counterintuitive. It calls them back to being the most excellent citizens of the worlds in which they live. I think about a place like Romans 13, which is really an exposition of what Jesus said when he said, render to Caesar. It says, let every person... And he's writing this letter to Christians in Rome. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We get the same message coming through in 1 Peter 2. And I'll read you a slightly longer section here where Peter says to the Christians scattered through the Roman Empire, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, a supreme, or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor. And friends, I don't know if you feel just how deeply offensive and frustrating these words must have been for Christians to hear at the time. Living as they were under the darkness of evil emperors. And they're being told by an apostle to fear God and to honour the emperor. And then he lays the point down even more heavily when he says in the next line, to slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, I know that our church is made up of people from all over the world, from different kinds of governments and systems. And in the many conversations I've had over the years, I've heard many, many uh, criticisms voiced about our own government and about governments we live under or have come from. And here's the shocking thing. The New Testament says this is not the Christian way. And it seems to make no sense. Caesar, the Caesar that Jesus is speaking about, Augustus, was evil, claimed to be divine. The success of Caesar who came after him, and of course Nero was the standout one of the first century who burned Christians like candles along the roads and put them in his amphitheatres to be eaten alive by animals. These men were, were personified evil. 
And we get frustrated with our rulers, don't we? And we think, you know, we see their flaws and their weaknesses. No, no, they're tame in comparison. You think, why? Why is this? Why is it? You know, Jesus put it like this in Luke chapter 10 when he sent his apostles out on a missions journey. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he said, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What kind of savior is this who sends us into a hostile world among the wolves and sends us without even the ability to defend ourselves, or to protect our cause. He sends us as lambs, vulnerable, weak. And you think, what is this? And I think the, the only way we can really understand the, the, the tenor of the teaching of the New Testament, what it means to be these dual citizens who love God but live under corrupt regimes, the only way we can understand it is to see what Paul said in Romans 13, that God's in control. He said... There is no authority except from God. So to rebel against authority is actually to rebel against God himself. And this is true at you a very personal level. Parents, boss. It's true also at the, the grander level of the authorities that God puts over us. We have to trust in his authority. And we have to recognize, as Peter stressed, that our calling here is to do good. Why? Because our greatest urgent need is to reflect well upon the Savior whom we serve, not to fight for our rights in this world. We are to be embodied models of godliness and Christ-likeness wherever we are. Because it's more important that we protect and serve the reputation of Jesus than it is that we further our own interests in this world. And the surprising thing is that when people are Christ-like models in this world, the sovereignty of God that I've just been speaking about will often elevate those people into positions of power and influence to bring about the change that he wants, which is certainly what we see happening through history as God's people patiently preached the gospel and sought to be good citizens. The Roman Empire was transformed. But we know it also through Old Testament history, how God raises up a Joseph, how he raises up an Esther, how he raises up a Daniel. These people who are models of godliness, he puts them in high positions of power and influence, which is why God can use those means. But very rarely when we force our way into that, rather when we seek first and foremost to be devoted to him, to be models of Christ-likeness, then he uses us to bring change in this world. I want to show you a fourth aspect then of what Jesus does here. He unleashes mission. This is the, the great power in what Christ does when he says, render to Caesar and render to God. Up to this point, and this is so crucial, we get our heads into the context. Up to this point, the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel were one entity. So that to be an Israelite was to be part of the kingdom. And of course, Jesus announcing the kingdom is an inherently political statement. People think, you know, the way that the kingdom's going to grow and he's announced that he's going to be this Messiah who's going to rule from sea to sea, he's going to have a global rule. The natural, logical consequence of that is that Jesus is going to conquer the nations at the, the edge of the sword. So if Jesus has this ambition for a global kingdom, it raises up a huge problem. How is this going to be fulfilled if the kingdom is a political and national institution. And here's what's radical about what Jesus does here. You know, you can think about the carriages of a train 
bound together, the nation and the kingdom, two things tied together. And what he does is he uncouples them or he untethers them. So that the kingdom, so that the nation carries on along the tracks, but so that his kingdom is untethered to have its hidden influence in the world and is unleashed. Now, when I describe for you what I'm trying to, to show you is so vital here, this, this idea of the separation of the church from the state. Many of you probably are kind of shrugging and thinking, yeah, so what, we, we already assume this, we know this. This is just natural to us. But you, you have to realize that's the consequence of how important this statement is that Jesus said. Nobody thought this at the time. It wasn't the case that religion could be thought of in private terms as spirituality as something that could be subterranean, under the ground and separated from the political institutions. Christ brought this change. And it unleashed the gospel on the world in a way that meant that it couldn't be slowed down by the advances of political interests or the need to conquer nations and so on. What does that achieve? Let me show you what dynamic thing it achieves. It achieves the freedom of the gospel to spread into the ends of the earth, which it is continually doing, even in hostile environments, even in places that are absolutely unwelcoming to Christianity and to the word of God. The gospel is unleashed because it can just go underground. It can just go from heart to heart, from life to life. Another thing it does is it mobilizes all of us, every man, woman and child, that we are part of this kingdom advance. In other words, we don't have to be in positions of power and influence or strength or might in order to to be part of this kingdom spread, which was true at the time. You think about how the kingdom of God at the time rose or fall based on the quality of its kings. Because the king was everything. If the king loved Jesus, the whole nation followed, sorry, loved God, the whole nation followed God. If the king hated God, the whole nation was led into idolatry. And so it was all about the powerful people. And what the New Testament does and what Christ does by this statement is he liberates his people to be effective at the grassroots level so that every single one of you is a dynamic kingdom ambassador. And you don't need to be in any position to be that. In fact, the lower you are, the better in Christ's mind. What dignity this puts upon us. And it allows the kingdom of God to grow even as these empires rose and fell. The Roman Empire would last a significant amount of time, but eventually it would topple. We're still living, of course, in its influence now, but it's gone. The kingdom of Jesus is still here, still growing, still spreading, still touching every corner of this earth. That's what Jesus accomplished by this statement. Let me just use an illustration to explain this. You know when the Anglican Church separated from the Catholic Church in the 1500s, for the next couple of centuries, the the Anglicans continued to be the state church that dominated Christianity in this country. And of course there were breakaways, the Puritans in the 1600s who were ejected from the Anglican Church and became the Baptists and, and various other denominations. But even so, the Anglican Church prevailed right into the 1700s and arguably is still the most influential Christian institution here in the UK. And that weds the church and the state together. And in the 1700s, much like today, that influence was pretty impotent. And I mean to say that in the early 1700s, 
the United Kingdom had largely turned its back, or England had largely turned its back on God. The average person wasn't particularly interested in Jesus. There were gin houses on most streets in London, which reflects um, that there was a lot of alcoholism. There was lots of prostitution, and things basically had drifted away from being a kind of, in any way, a Christian nation. And, you know, the church was basically ineffective. People who went to church did so out of custom and tradition. There was little real heartfelt devotion to God. It was a dry, crusty institution. And then these preachers began to arise. George Whitfield was one of the most influential, but also the one who's had the biggest lasting impact was John Wesley, his friend. Now, John Wesley was a good Anglican. He was ordained as an Anglican vicar, as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel. But he, he began to bring in these innovations. He actually believed the gospel that he was preaching, which was the great innovation. And he, he began to preach about the need to be born again, the need that you, don't, you can't just inherit your faith from your parents. You have to believe on Christ for yourself. And these men began preaching in, in such a way, with such vigor, with such passion, that eventually, naturally, there was a break between the Anglican church and they had to break away from it. And what they formed, what particularly John Wesley formed, was, the Meth- was Methodism. Now, Methodism today looks rather like the Anglican Church, pretty much a spent force, encrusted as an institution. And This is no disrespect. There are good Methodists and good Methodist churches, but by and large, it seems to be an, a denomination that's, that's largely um, run out of steam. But at the time, it was a world-changing force, much like the early church. And what it was done, by being freed from the Anglicanism, these preachers did something which they weren't allowed to do, which was preach in the open air to thousands of people who were, who were becoming Christians, which they weren't allowed to do in, if they remained Anglicans. They also set up all these small groups, what we today call life groups, but they were just home groups that met in homes uh, as part of their, these churches that they were establishing, which kind of democratized the faith and brought it down to grass level, to the community, to discipleship, to one to one relationships. And all of this was like grassroots innovation. Another thing they did, of course, was they raised up loads of preachers, these lay preachers, these circuit preachers who'd ride on horseback from town to town preaching the gospel in the churches and in the fields. And all of this, therefore, was a kind of grassroots movement that, that it broke away from the bishops and the lords and in their robes and in their wonderful cathedrals and their beautiful buildings. It broke away from all of that which had largely died and was having zero influence for good upon the nation in the early 1700s and instead birthed this new movement that wasn't interested in power, wasn't interested in government, wasn't interested in politics, wasn't interested in pleasing people, just wanted to preach Christ. And the result was one of the fastest growing movements that's ever taken place in the history of Christianity. Methodism is still a global force in some regards because of the legacy of what these men accomplished in their day. And in many ways, that's a picture of what the early church was. When Christ said, render to Caesar and to God, he unleashed his people on the world in a way which meant they were no longer contained by politics, by the state, by their interest in government and power. They were able just to get on with the job of of teaching people about God and his ways. This is still the force that we need to, to understand. Friends, we desperately need to understand this. Christians are so interested, aren't they, in, in society and culture and the way things are going. And 
And I have an interest in these things, but friends, I want us to recover the urgency of Christ and of the apostles. I want us to recover that. In some ways, we should be less interested in our culture, less interested in our society to the extent that we don't need to change it. We need to preach Christ. We need to recover this, this, this wonderful, powerful missionary stance that Christ unleashed this time. Let me show you one final thing then. I want to describe this last principle as absolute devotion. There's something actually that is very subversive. Even though he doesn't put himself in direct conflict with Caesar, there is something very subversive about what he says here. And I want to show you this because it's not immediately obvious. When he calls for the the denarius, the coin, what does he say? He says, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And the implication, the logical implication of what he then says is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If Caesar's face is on the coin, then pay your taxes, you know, to build your roads and and offer you protection from criminals and so on. Pay your taxes, that's fine. But here's the less obvious implication of what he's saying. He then says, and to God, the things that are God's, which raises this question, where is God's image? Where is his likeness? The answer, of course, is in every human life. This is you know, page one of the Bible, that God created man and woman in his own image. So when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, because Caesar's face is on that coin, the implication of what he says when he says, render to God the things that are God's, is that, look, all of humanity belongs to God. Your life belongs to God. Now you can see how this is a deeply subversive claim against the emperor, even though it doesn't look quite so obvious on the surface. And it has very far-reaching, powerful, extensive implications for us. Let me think about this with you at the personal level. It means that even if the world gets something, you know, your work and your money and so on, God gets everything because he owns you. He owns your life. You think about the implication of this with regard to your money. Jesus is saying it's okay, you can pay your taxes. But if God owns you, then he owns all your money as well. Which is, of course, the foundation of what Christians believe about generosity. We, we don't believe that any of this is our own. We, what, what have we that we didn't receive? That it's better to give than to receive. And, of course, the reason why we give, not only to the church and to God's kingdom work, but also in generosity to those in need around us, the reason why we're generous is because we're actually just stewards of what God has put in our hands. It's not here to spend on ourselves to, to make our lives more comfortable and to, to feather our beds, as it were. J- Jesus has entrusted you with this, this portion. What are you going to do with it? Well, if he owns your life, if you're the image of God and he owns you and you're meant to render to God your whole life, then of course it follows naturally that all your money is his as well. Or you think about how you spend your life in work. Of course, render to Caesar has an implication for your labor, doesn't it? Because you work for, you work for, for bosses and for companies and even for a government that, that um, you might not disagree with on every level or you might not feel entirely in line with the mission of. And, you know, for many of us, they, we just do jobs that are just jobs and we can't necessarily see the kingdom work of, in what we're doing. And Jesus is saying it's okay. You can work for them. You can work for your boss. You can work for, um, for these, these powers. But if God owns your life, if you're the image, if you're the coin, and that God, you're meant to render to God your life, 
then every effort, every ounce of energy you expend in work is ultimately for him, no matter what you do. Your whole life is an offering of worship. This is what Paul said to, um, what he said to uh, the slaves and the, the workers at the time when he was writing to the Colossian church. If I can just find this passage. He said, um, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. This has a mighty implication for you, friends. Everything in your life is worship. If you're the image of God, there is no part of your life that isn't touched by the claims of Christ. Render to God the things that are God's. It's everything. And of course, this also has this, not just a personal implication, it has a global implication. This is what I mean when I describe Jesus' words as being subversive. Caesar's coins would remain in circulation for as long as Caesar was alive, or for as long as he wasn't overthrown by some other ruler. Caesar's power, in other words, has, is finite and limited, and ultimately we can pay our tax because we know that in the end God, God's in control, and he brings these rulers down and brings them to naught. But God's image in this world, his people were not so easily destroyed. And so Christ's claim upon the earth is extensive, it's global, it encompasses every human life. This is the radical thing that he's saying to us. I want to just close and just say this. I think what this statement does is it puts an enormous sense of responsibility and weight upon us as worshippers of the living God. That the, the way Jesus wants to extend his kingdom, to put it negatively, is that he, he doesn't want us to be interested in the worldly methods and power. In, in some sense, Jesus seems to renounce and reject power as a means of extending his kingdom. And, and we're just thinking in worldly terms when we think that way. But to put it in a positive sense, when we recognize that God has a claim on our lives, when we become disciples of Jesus, when every waking breath and conscious thought is devoted as worship to him, and when our whole lives therefore are rendered to God in service, the kingdom has power. It is a mighty force that gets unleashed upon this world to bring about change in every layer of society, but most of all to show people the goodness of our God and King. This is the kingdom at work. I want to close by just reminding you of what Paul said. He said, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And what he was speaking of was his work as an apostle. He said, Look, we're very weak vessels, actually. Like a clay jar, we're fragile, we're cracked and old and dusty. And it seems almost unthinkable that God wants to use people like us. Why doesn't he use the gold vessels? Why doesn't he use the the beautiful vessels? But he says, no, no, no. He chooses jars of clay. He chooses weak people like you and me, people who are nothing. And then he puts his treasure in those jars. The treasure is the gospel. And he does it so that, as Paul says, that the surpassing power, it can be shown that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The reason why God loves to use this This underground, hidden, subversive, grassroots, weak way of changing the world is because ultimately that's what brings him glory. And this is the stunning truth of Christian faith. 
that where we see God's power most evidently at work is when his people are most abused and downtrodden. Whereas people seem on the surface of it to be most weak, that's where we see God being glorified the most. Where we see them in high positions of power, very often we see people who have, who have abandoned the cause and are bringing shame to the name of Christ. Not always, but far too often. And friends, I want to encourage you. You are making a difference. God has put you where he wants you to be. We don't need to seek position of influence. We need to seek to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer ourselves, to render your life to God, your whole existence. And in that way, God's kingdom spreads. Let's pray. Living God, we want to thank you that in you, we have this absolute certainty and confidence that your gospel is going to touch every corner of this planet. And Lord, I pray that we will take the right kind of encouragement from this passage. That Lord, we are meant to be model citizens in this world, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But also, Lord, to engage full heartedly and with absolute passion to offer our lives to you, Lord Jesus, as an offering of worship. Give us the confidence, Lord, that you're going to use us as we serve you. Give us influence in every corner of this city, in our workplaces, among neighbours, among friends and family, that will be Christ-like models of devotion to you, Lord God that they'll see the face of Christ in our faces as we're transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us confidence that your gospel is going to bring about your powerful change in this world as it has been doing through your people. We love you. We want to serve you. We want to offer you our lives. Amen.